0: I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics.
1: University of Minnesota Extension, Minnesota are brought to you by uh, not only the U of M Extension, but also generous support from the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, along with the uh, Minnesota Corn Growers Research and Promotion Council. Uh, I'm Dave Nicolai, I'm a regional extension educator in, in crops, uh, and my uh, co-host and co-moderator is Anthony Hansen. Uh, We'd like to welcome uh, today's guests, uh, Dr. Uh, Bob Cook from the University of Minnesota Extension Entomologist, and Bruce Potter from the uh, Research and Extension and Outreach Center at Lamberton in Integrated Pest Management. And later on in the program, we'll be joined by Dr. Tom Peters, uh, University of Minnesota and NDSU weed control specialist in uh, sugar beets. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to my uh, co-moderator in Integrated Pest Management, uh, Anthony Hansen. So Anthony, take it away.
2: Thanks, Dave. And yeah, we're going to be focusing a lot on the pests today here, uh, insects, and then later on weeds. So I think to start things off, Bob, uh, basically we're dealing with soybeans that have been planted you know, over a long period of time. Though. So there's a lot of variability in what people have for uh, growth stages right now. So what is that looking like for soybean insects in general? But the big question is always going to be soybean aphid. What can you uh, say so far, but we might be able to expect with that one?
3: Yeah, for soybean aphid, um, I guess maybe even just stepping back a little bit with that irregularity and planting dates, um, pests like soybean aphid, bean leaf beetle, you know, I think early on they're going to be preferring those earlier planted soybean fields. Sometimes that's because all there is, so it could be concentrating them there. I haven't seen any soybean aphids yet. I'm not sure if Bruce has, um, but I have seen some bean leaf beetles out there. Not very many, but just a few here and there. Um, another pest where, uh, planting dates could be important is, uh, soybean gall midge. It's not a widespread or very damaging pest yet across much of Minnesota, but it's an emerging issue. And I think Bruce will touch more on that later. So this
2: is a little early for this question, Bob, but uh, people have been talking about it quite a bit already, uh, come July or so when we might be treating for soybean aphid, uh, what alternatives do we have for chlorpyrifos? And that's kind of a reminder we like to put out that uh, the registration
3: has been pulled for that, that's no longer available for field crop use. Right, so <clears throat> chlorpyrifos containing products, you know, or mixtures that have chlorpyrifos that are no longer in our toolbox, for soybean aphid management, but fortunately we we do still have some other effective uh, chemical tools available. Um, Some of the newer products like Transform, Savanto, Safina have proven to be pretty effective against soybean aphids in our research trials. And from what I hear from uh, the limited number of growers that I know that have tried any of those. Um, And those three uh, products are all, they all have the benefit of being more gentle on the natural enemies. So they're, they're toxic to the aphids, but less toxic to some of the beneficial insects, you know, and especially for pest management that includes the, you know, predatory insects like lady beetles and even the, uh, tiny parasitic wasps that attack, um, the aphids. And there are, you know, still the pyrethroids, but keep in mind, you know, over, what, what are we going on? Oh, six or seven years, We've got reports of resistance, pyrethroid resistance in the soybean aphids. So use of um, you know a pyrethroid might be kind of a, a risky choice for your first application against a soybean aphid infestation. So in a
2: lot of years, we do talk about uh, the seed treatments now and how effective they might be. Uh, when we're getting to late plantings now where some people are planting you know, past the insurance deadline of June 10th, are they going to see potentially benefit for soybean aphid or is that still uh, a period of time where um, you're not seeing much for aphids yet and you're not getting as much use out of that?
3: I think in a a typical year, by the time, you know, with regular planting dates with, with the seed treatment, by the time the aphids colonize those fields, a lot of the insecticide within those plants has dissipated. So you might not get much of a, an impact on the aphid populations from that neonicotinoid in the plants. However, with later planting, you know, you could be creating a situation where you might have higher concentrations of that insecticide in the plants when the aphids show up. So in that case, you could get, um, you know, maybe a higher chance of getting a return or, or an impact of that insecticide on the pest population. Bruce, did you have any thoughts about that?
4: Oh, I think that's right. I mean, typically, you know, by V3 stage soybeans, uh, um, the efficacy of the, of the neonics are pretty well gone out of those seed treatments. Um, but later planting, yeah, if you can hit them, hit them as they're moving into soybeans. I think actually right now about, they, they should be, uh, they should be starting to move off a of buckthorn. We've got uh, the earliest beans or V3 out there right now. We're darn close to it. So I think we're we're going to see some aphids fairly quickly. I think one of the things the, the season's of weather is shaping up like last year, hot and windy when that movement's taking on. And I don't think on uh, these small beans, I think that's pretty hard on, on those aphids trying to colonize soybeans.
2: For Bruce or Bob, uh, do
4: we have
2: any insects that could show up that we normally don't see for soybeans, uh, especially because of the lake planting? Either uh, let's say low ground that was potentially flooded just late planting or possibly something to do with how things are planted too. We have narrow rows going in, people using drills. All of these things are in the mix. Could that be affecting any insects you can think of that might just be sporadic pests or might not be something we think about too much?
3: Um, You know, one issue that comes to mind, Anthony, might be, uh, you know, if there have been weed control issues due to the weather, you get a lot of grassy weeds that could you know, be attractive to some of the caterpillar pests um, off the top of my head. Uh, Bruce, do you have any other any other uh, thoughts there? Or Anthony, did you have something in mind? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh,
2: Tom Peters actually is asking about grasshoppers. And I think that's one that uh, we expect for soybeans possibly later in the year, more August, if we're going to see them. Um, right now, I'm seeing some grasshoppers out there, but low numbers, I think our wet spring definitely helped those ones out quite a bit. But yeah, I think that's, it's just the recurring question of, you know, it's been an odd year for planting. So what other unexpected things might happen?
3: Yeah, I think for the grasshoppers, you know, the, they're really favored by the dry weather, right? So conditions were pretty dry the last couple of years. So we heard more and more of, you know, increasing grasshopper populations, but, you know, like you said, Anthony, the wetter conditions this spring might might be helping to knock some of those populations back, I think we'll have to see how how conditions play out.
4: Yeah, well, they, they should there should be uh they should be hatching now. Um, the early hatching species like two stripes uh, definitely um, red legs maybe are going to be a little bit later, but uh, you know grasshoppers really like a uh, most of them like a, a balanced diet, some grasses, some forbs, so. I suppose possibly if you have, have uh, some weeds in that field, it'll, it'll be a little more attractive to them, but, uh, really, you know, catching them early, any infestations early in the, you know, in the, in the field or on the borders is the way to go get them out of there when they're small, easy to control.
2: So Bruce, I'll pass this one over to you. Um, soybean gall midge, What is kind of the plan for this year with that one? What are you keeping an eye out for? Where are you looking so far
4: and uh, my what plan can or, people My, my plan, plan or the well, Belmadge's plan. They're two different things and I don't know what they're thinking. Um, so right, there's a, there's a multi-state project uh, uh, funded by the uh, North Central Soybean Research Prode- pro, uh, Program. And we've got, uh, we're looking for emergence of adults as they come out of um, last year's soybean fields. Um, they are catching gall right now in, in Southern Nebraska and Southern Iowa. I haven't caught any in Minnesota yet. Um, so we're still trying to sort out if Minnesota is the, at the edge of their range and that's why our populations aren't as high maybe as they get them in Nebraska, or if it's just a matter of they haven't, uh, populations haven't expanded and built up here as well. So. A lot we don't know about this insect. It's It's been a big puzzle. Um, so we're going to be looking at emergence and, and uh, those are on the web. If you go to Um there's a map that'll show you when and where uh, adult emergence, or emergence has happened. Um, I think one of the things about planting date is if you have an early planting date with respect to the gall midge, they do better. They tend to lay their eggs in, in these growth uh, fissures on the soybean stem, lower stem, where as that soybean plant grows, um, the stem expands and you get uh, get these uh, cracks in the stem. That's where they seem to prefer to lay eggs. So early, larger soybeans are a little more attractive. Um, late planting, if it's real late planting, um, you might miss that colonization off of last year's soybeans just because of, the, this year's soybeans are, are, going to be too small for them to do well on.
2: I think we got a couple non-soybean questions coming in here. Um, one, we got, uh, asking about feeding on V2 to V5 corn, seen feeding, but no bugs in sight at least. So any ideas probably Bruce on what could be showing up in that room?
4: Um, so it could be leaf feeding by, um, maybe small cutworms. Um, you know, if it's a real late flight, uh, we had some stuff into early May that those, cat- or late May rather, those caterpillars should be pretty small yet. Um, that would be one thing. Um, depends on what the feeding looks like. If it's just holes in the leaf, or if it's a series of holes across the leaf, may, you know, if it's no-till, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe some uh, stink bugs or something like that could be out there too. but um my first guess is gonna be is going to be a caterpillar of some sort or grasshoppers possibly. One
2: other question, I know Bruce, we've been talking about this in the past a bit, a little bit this morning before the meeting. Alfalfa weevil, people are having issues with it in some parts of the state. And basically what have you been hearing so far about what's been happening with that one?
4: Well, from what I've been able to gather so far, it's uh, kind of of where we had uh, snow cover when we had that uh, cold snap this winter, where the snow cover was uh, to the north. Uh, That's where the issues are as you get south, where it was more open uh, during the winter, Um, the populations are lower. And the other thing I am hearing is there's been some concern guys have treated with parethroids and and, before cutting, and, and it's not working very well. They're having some issues under the uh, under the windrow. So there's a possibility we might be uh, dealing with some pyrethroid resistance in that population. Um, it happens. Uh, it's not. It's fairly common out west uh, in the western states, but uh, we don't know what the status of resistance is in Minnesota for sure yet. I'm awful suspicious though. Yeah, I'll be
2: curious too with that one. Uh, one question came in. Uh, does using Flexstar and herbicide affect insect pressure? So uh, Bob or Bruce, if you want to comment on that one a bit there.
4: Well, Um, it's going to be, because you've got that leaf injury, um, my guess is it'll be a little less attractive for for soybean aphids, at least until that new growth comes out. But uh, I don't know if there's any been been any real definitive studies on that at all. you know that the the flex injuries is fairly uh, fairly temporary as long as you've got good growing conditions. Um, so, but
3: yeah, the only, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not aware of any direct impacts of that yeah. herbicide on the insects. Um, the other possibility could be you know knocking down the weed hosts that certain insects might be feeding on, and then they could move over to the crop. Kind of an indirect effect. All
2: right I think I got one last question that came in here uh I'll hand it to Bruce and that's actually a good segue over to uh, uh Tom Peters afterwards here uh Bruce you talked a little bit about having some insect issues and in sugar beets so it's kind of wondering what's been uh going on in that world because so we don't always cover sugar beets as much on this webinar but every now and then we'll get some in there.
4: Well we have been getting a just over the last week or so, I've been getting some reports of black cutworms in sugar beets in that Renville Meeker County area, um, and that, that the timing fits the size the size of the cutworm spits. Um, so, uh, and there I talked to one guy yesterday, one consultant yesterday, and he was saying they were taking off some fairly large beets, but they were cutting below ground. So. It's more than likely black cutworms that are doing that. Makes it a little harder to control uh, cutworms if they're uh, if they're not coming above ground. Uh, you know, insecticide they have to come in contact with the insecticide. So uh, sometimes uh, you know, cultivation if you can do that helps get that insecticide down where the cutworms are, gets them a little more active, or some rain will get them to move to the surface. Um, so it, it's, uh, we're, we're starting to feel the lack of ban in a couple crops and sugar beets and, and uh, alfalfa are two who are having problems just because of uh, control issues.
1: Okay, well, thank you,
2: uh,
1: uh, Bruce and Bob. Any more questions that have came in, Anthony, at this point in time?
2: I think we've gotten our list cleared out so far. So if, right. yeah, if anyone has additional questions, feel free to add them to the Q&A box and we'll get them addressed for you. Okay, um,
1: well, if those guys will hang around a little bit. We'll see if we have any questions that come in in the, uh, the remaining part of our program, but I'm gonna jump over to weed control. And with this, uh, Tom uh, Peters uh, is the uh, extension uh, weed control specialist uh, for University of Minnesota and North Dakota State University, primarily working in the, sh- in the sugar beet area. I should say not primarily, but he is, uh, uh, but he gets questions from, uh, from all over and, and those types of things. And Tom, you've certainly been busy uh, this last year. Maybe just segue a, a little bit about, um, we talk about labels all the time and we have an, an, an older herbicide, at least uh, older because it relates back to what I am as, as, as older and that's, and that's uh, acifluorophan um, or our blazer. And, and uh, you have a section 18 uh, of all crops in, in sugar beets and maybe tell the folks a little bit why um, in terms of weed control, uh why are you doing this and why do we need uh a blazer in a sugar beet crop here uh in uh, in Minnesota? Maybe a little bit of background up gets into a little bit on, on our weed spectrum, but uh uh what's what's the reasoning behind this?
0: Uh Dave, uh, you're right. Uh all blazer or ultra blazer or acid is indeed a, an oldie, but goodie. It's been around for many, many years. Um, it's primarily a broadleaf herbicide and it is primarily a pigweed herbicide. So not much activity on lambs quarters. Um, if you have kosher, it needs to be small, um, but the reason why we're interested in, in, in blazer and sugar beets is we have a lot of glyphosate resistant water hemp. And in some years, we have escapes, escapes from our soil applied herbicide program. So I wanna make sure our listeners are clear blazer is not our, our number one program for water hemp control. The idea of Blazor is to control escape weeds from those other programs. Um, use of Outlook, um, the s products, or Warrant, or Ethifumazate, which goes by a number of names, nortron Ethatron, Nektron. So what we're doing is we're using Ultra Blazer to get the escapes. So on sugar beet, that means sugar beets that are at least at the six leaf stage. And we're making one application of a pint per acre, um, blazer with uh, a non-ionic surfactant because we think the oils are too harsh. And then under extreme conditions, we'll add uh, glyphosate to the mixture as well. And we're getting some, adjuvant you know contribution from the glyphosate formulation too so it tends to be a little bit hotter so that that application is approved and it'll be in effect through the month of July
1: you know you can we can translate that really easily I think Tom over to soybeans because you you, you use the same type of reasoning when we talk about you know putting a pre on in a soybean situation but now, you know, I, I was out down to the Rochester area and observed you know, a whole host of lamb, lamb squatters that are emerging, et cetera. Um, and we talk about you know, whether, it's, whether it's not just blazer and ultra blazer, which you can use in soybeans, but we have other products that are, that are group 15s and, and so forth uh, that are, would be applicable uh, in soybeans or post emergence. Uh, maybe back up here a little bit and talk about all of those, that particular site of action or mode of action when we talk about weed height and also you know axillary buds and so forth, I mean there's a limit here uh, to what we can expect. Uh, you know, it's not certainly glyphosate.
0: And and I have to to I think you're making a good point, Dave. And I have to temper everybody's expectations. So Ultra Blazer is most effective on pigweed that's less than four inches tall so the other thing that's really key is you've got to get good coverage which means you've got to use a lot of water you know i'm thinking 15 gallons i'm thinking 20 there's guys that use 25 gallons of water to get good coverage now the other thing going on dave especially on bigger sugar beets is sometimes the sugar beet partially Covers the weed, and you know how pigweed is, water hemp is. There's so many growing points. Sometimes the the water hemp will recover from the other side of the plant that didn't get good coverage. So you're absolutely right. Ultra Blazer is not glyphosate 2.0. It's a um, it's a, a a fix that we have to try to clean up or get some of the escapes in these fields.
1: So I guess my point is well taken then about any of the other group 15s. I mean they're 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 going to have the similar activity regardless of the crop when we talk about that that weed and that weed growth correct even in a Absolutely. soybean situation.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 as you said it the strategy is really the same in 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 soybean and and, and sugar beet. And to be honest with you The whole program came from Bob Hartzler at Iowa State. I mean, he was the one that started talking about a layered approach in soybean. And I thought, heck, if it works in soybean, let's give it a shot in sugar beets. So we're using a pre, an early post, and a, a late post chloroacetamide program now in sugar beets to control pigweed.
1: We have a, a lot of traded soybeans out here and some of the enlist and so forth that even have a glufosinate or Liberty trait. Um, just a little bit about that. I mean, we're getting into post-emergence situation even with uh, glufosinate. Although maybe that doesn't fit you know, some of these other categories as a, as a true um, a group 15, but we still have a weed size. Uh, we've got cutoffs um, in here in terms of our height. When we talk about uh, and and R one on uh, particularly even on soybeans where we have to when, when we're blossoming and I there is a really good publication I think uh, Phyllis is going to put it up here in the in in the box here in the, in the chat box a little bit out of uh, Purdue and also another one out of out of Illinois uh, that I came across one of them is on uh, growth regular growth stage cutoffs for herbicide applications in corn and soybeans. Um, I our good friend. Uh, uh, down Bill Johnson in Purdue puts this together, and I, I, I like to use it sometimes because it's a little bit ahead of where we are, uh, and, and so forth. So this has been out there, but since we're behind a little bit, typically on our where our crops are emerging, I think it's still uh, applicable. Uh, the only thing is that dicamba obviously has a different situation in Minnesota here, and then also um, uh, out of Illinois is the, res- uh, the residual soybean herbicides, where you can apply those post-emerge over the top if you haven't haven't got those on. So. Uh, those are in the uh, in the boxes uh, as well. I think we had some questions that came in, Tom. Uh, yes. and you had a chance to look at those a little bit., uh, you want to comment on on some of those uh, that we received already?
0: Well, you know, we've been talking a lot, Dave, about pre-herbicides. And because of circumstances, because of the lateness, because of the need to make sure we get planting done, not everybody gets a pre-emergence herbicide out. So, and I'm, I'm gonna switch over to soybean now because that would be a bad day in sugar beet. So in soybean, what do I do if I have broadleaf weeds and I didn't get a pre-emergence herbicide out? And I'm gonna say, you better be scouting weekly. Keep an eye on those fields because they change. It's incredible with these uh, moisture and temperature situations, how our fields are changing and uh, make sure that you're um, um, spraying small weeds Um, you know what traits are in your product you know what other co-herbicide mixtures are available you're sure that you can assess those problems or products this year that they're available to 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 purchase and um, you already alluded to it Dave in southern Minnesota you're done using you're done using dicamba in 2022 The guys north of uh, Interstate 94, uh, we still have 15 days, but we're gonna give five days away because we've got a couple of days of wind and then we've got a couple of days of hot temperatures. So um, um, we're starting to get limited here a little bit. Um, One good news is it's a perfect season now for Liberty herbicide. Uh, Liberty likes heat, Liberty likes humidity, liberty lake sun and we're certainly getting all three of those so i'm expecting good performance from liberty herbicide
1: well and and certainly you have to keep in mind using enough water Uh, i think in those situations where we've had problems in the past and of course it really likes those warm temperatures as you alluded to tom um, you know it's going to work that much better uh, under those uh, conditions, um, you know, the, we're going to get really hot here uh, Monday. We're, we're talking uh, forecasted high 99. Is there anything that we need to be careful about post emergence when it gets that warm?
0: I don't like to spray when it's in the 90s, to be honest. And I, I don't think our products are. They don't perform the same way when it gets excessively hot. So first of all, I would encourage our listeners not to spray when it's 90, 95 degrees. Um, The response on the crop is going to be unacceptable. And quite frankly, our weeds shut down. So they don't grow and and a lot of these products that interrupt different pathways in weeds, well, they're not working. So we're we're gonna be disappointed in, in the control. Now, if you have to spray, Dave, I would prefer that you spray in the evenings, take advantage of the cooler portion of the day as compared to getting out early in the morning and then have that product um, baked during the hot part of the day.
1: A couple of questions that came in, Tom. One was how long will residual herbicides be effective? And I know that's, that's a little bit of a crapshoot depending upon when they were applied, but uh, typically uh, there's a limit. That's the reason why we do layering Uh, But if you look at, uh, you've had experience, obviously, with Outlook and a lot of different crops. Uh, What's your expectation uh, for a product like that in terms of uh, efficacy going forward?
0: Yeah. So if you can get it in the ground, remember, these products are, they need to be incorporated into the soil. So if you get rain on them, I think they're three-week products, Dave. And that's one of the reasons why we layer them because we know we need more than three weeks of control. So um, the chloroacetamides in my book are three weeks products maybe four if we're lucky. Um, jumping into the, some of the soil applied PPO inhibitor products in soybeans. So I'm thinking about Valor and I wanna contrast that to Um, some of the Authority products. Authority is a longer residual product. I think you can get eight weeks, maybe 10 weeks out of that one. Um, Valor is is a shorter residual product, probably four weeks, maybe five if you're lucky. Um, um, Some growers are using Metribuzin in soybean, and um, that's another four or five week product that we get residual control from. So the short answer, Dave, is it's going to be dependent on environmental conditions, um, certainly getting rainfall to get it activated, and then the chemistry itself. And we haven't talked about some of the long residual ALS inhibitor herbicides, uh, but some of those are full season uh, herbicides. They're not used as much as, as, as the ones that I've mentioned.
1: Well, certainly that's the that's the ALS, and then uh, they talk about metribuzin. There was a question that came in from uh, one listener about metribuzin and, and atrazine. Uh, and Evidently, this is a rotated ground, so I'm cons- um, considering that probably corn or soybeans are involved. <clears throat> but using one or both with prees um, yep. on rotated ground, and I'm always a little concerned about soil pH and where they're where they're from. But uh, um, I would be kind of cautioned to. Uh, um, use both of those in a rotation situation. What's your, what's your feeling?
0: Well, first of all, they're part of my arsenal. They're in my toolbox. So I love atrazine. I don't know as much about metribuzin, uh, but, but we see it in soybean as as well. It's in some of the premixes that we have. So I'll focus my remarks a little more on atrazine. I, I like to use atrazine I'm very cautious about the rate. So pay attention to the rate you're using and and you hit hit it on the head, Dave. You've gotta be aware of your soil, how much organic matter, how much, what's the texture of your soil, and of course, what the pH of your soil is. So under high pH conditions, these products are gonna be more active immediately. Under low pHs, and by low, I mean, maybe 7.2 or less, they're gonna be bound to soil and they're gonna be more likely uh, to carry over.
1: I think
0: one of the last- One last thing, the triazines are broken down by microbes. Okay, So if we get good rain, and I'm thinking six inches of rain in, in June, July, and August, we generally get microbial degradation of those products and they don't cause any problems to our rotation crops.
1: Um, one of the last questions I wanted to get to, and then there was another one that came in the Q&A box and I'm gonna respond separately with that one. Um, but that is, uh, we have a lot of Enlist soybeans and, and all that situation. If we just look at growth regulators, whether you're in Northern Minnesota can still use a dicamba, or whether you're using um, more of the Enlist or Enlist dual products you know, with, with uh, uh, glyphosate, talk a little bit about weed height when it yeah. comes to that. And, you know, we've got uh, oftentimes weeds coming up at variable height. So how do we deal with a field that has variable height? I mean, some big, some small, are we going to average that target it? What's the strategy in there? Cause we're going to grow pretty darn fast here with this kind of temperature.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a tough question, Dave. Um, there's always going to be a range. And part of that is species related. So uh, common ragweed and maybe lamb's quarters is going to be bigger because they emerge sooner. They, they emerge earlier than the pigweeds. So I, I, as a rule of thumb, like to say four inches, but I know that sometimes it's six inches or seven inches. Um, and I think that gets back to what we talked about earlier about coverage. If you wanna kill these weeds, you gotta get coverage on them. And I don't care that you're using oxen herbicides. I, I still wanna make sure that we're getting coverage on them even with enlist um, herbicides. So, so let's be realistic about them. Sometimes weeds are bigger than we want them to be which means you've gotta use full rates, uh, get good coverage select the right nozzles that are designed for the herbicides that you're using and um, um, try to get out there under the the right uh, wind and air temperature conditions.
1: Well, our our good friend, uh, Greg Dahl just uh, offered here, please get great coverage to kill every growing point on the plant. And I think that's correct here. Absolutely. uh, And
0: I, I meant to say that with water hemp, that's the nemesis with water hemp is on a plant that's six or eight inches tall, there might be 20 growing points. There might be 25. So what that means is you've got to kill every one of those those buds to kill the plant. And if you don't kill them all, we get regrowth. And sometimes um, that regrowth is as bad as the original plant.
1: I'm going to, the, the last question, I am going to answer this, and Tom, you can help me out here. If you think about perennial weeds, we don't often talk about that, but perennial weeds, and this person has alfalfa, volunteer alfalfa coming up. He's got extend uh, uh, soybeans. It's about six inches high. Um, it's, it's always been a tough one uh, for, for me for controlling, you know, in that situation. Any, any um, uh, thoughts uh, in, in terms of that, when we're dealing with something with a root system?
0: I thought you were going to
1: answer this question. (laughs) That's why I turned it off you. (laughs) Well,
0: well, I, I just want to add to your observation or our listeners' observation. I've seen a lot of thistle this year. And to be honest with you, I've had more thistle questions in 2022 than my 10 years combined. So there's thistles out there. There's dandelions out there. Out in the western part of the state, uh, in my area here, we've got leafy spurge as well. So, so these perennials are are more problematic this year than other years. You're absolutely right, Dave.
1: So, but I, and in terms of that, you you have what's called you know obviously the labeled rates um, in situations uh, with, with alfalfa and perhaps six inches if you still can use a dicamba. I mean, that's certainly an option, you know, in, in their, um, you know, glyphosate too, but you'd have to use a very high rate, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not, we better be careful on what we say about alfalfa. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure, I don't know that you can even use, uh, dicamba shouldn't be anywhere close to alfalfa, in my opinion.
1: Well, if this is volunteer in soybeans coming out. Oh, up. I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, so he's controlling volunteer alfalfa. So um, I think you got to really look back at, the, at those labels. And if you have a traded soybean or you can use it, I know I remember the glyphosate label has to be at a high enough situation here and there, but check your labels in terms of rates. But certainly the bigger it is, the tougher the tougher it's going to be to control uh, in, in there. So if it's six inches, I think sooner the better, I think, in Tom at this point.
0: Hey, can I talk about a couple of things that are on my mind, questions sure. that I've got? Go ahead. Laudis atrazine. So laudis atrazine is a very common treatment in, in uh, corn. And um, um, at least in central Minnesota, west central Minnesota, sometimes laudis atrazine is on corn ground that's in rotation with sugar beets. So my rule of thumb is the 15th of June. So it's the 15th of June today. So, we've got to start moving away from lattice atrazine if we're worried about our, our rotational crops. So, I called out sugar beets, but it could also be soybean um, in the case of, of, of lattice as well. So, I, I just want everybody to be aware of that the later growing season is starting to butt up against some of the rotational restrictions that we have. And then Dave, you know, one of my favorite topics is, is how herbicides break down. And, and there was a question about the season. And since we're applying our products later, if that means we've got to worry more about carryover and, and I don't think so. And here's the reason why. Our herbicide breakdown degradation occurs during the months of June, July, and August. And that's a combination of the temperature and the rainfall conditions that we get in those months. So just because we're applying things three weeks, four weeks later than we normally are, I'm not overly concerned yet about, well, we're gonna shift everything back and we're gonna have a lot of herbicide carryover concerns. So um, I I would use these products to get your weeds, control your weeds, because that's our number one objective here. And let's see what our our, uh, rainfall conditions are, air temperature conditions are, during the months of June, July, and August to see if we get the microbial degradation.
1: Okay. Thank you very much, Tom. And with that, we're going to uh, end our program uh, for today. We'd like to thank you for attending Strategic Farming Field Notes. There's a very short four-question survey when you leave. Uh, There's uh, the sponsors we want to thank again, the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, along with the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council. Next week, we'll be back again Wednesday. That'll be June 22nd um, at eight o'clock with uh, current crop topics uh, in that situation. So Anthony, any last words? Otherwise, that's all I have.
2: That's most of what I got to Thank Bruce had a quick comment on the corn feeding. Uh, maybe think about if you have BT corn, those insects need to feed a little bit first, actually ingest the toxins. And that's possibly what's going on there too, just a little bit of feeding, but the crop may have taken care of that issue.
1: Again, and thank you again for attending the survey. Uh, certainly uh, enter in any questions and so forth uh, and thoughts about next week uh, as well. So uh, with that, uh, from the University of Minnesota Essential, this is Dave Nicolai. Thank you for attending this week. We'll see you next week.
2: Thank you, everyone.